You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Well, let's continue worshiping now through the reading of God's word. Genesis 46, we'll read the whole chapter. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. Verse five, then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his daughters, his sons' daughters, all his offsprings he, offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Verse 8, now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the sons of Simeon, Jemuel. Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, Shuel, and the sons of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, On, and Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and On and died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hemuel. Verse 13, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and put on Aram, according to his, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. Verse 16. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Ereli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, and, the, and Sarah, their sister. The sons of Bariah, Heber, and Melchiel, these are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Azaneth, the daughter of Petipherah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Bekor, Ishbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupin, Hupin, and Ard. Verse 22, these are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Nephtali, Jazeel, and Juni, and Jezur, and Shelem. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob whom came into Egypt, verse 26, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. 
all the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the household who came into Egypt were 70. Verse 28. He, as Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Verse 31, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my, fa- and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. Verse 33, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. As we have read, we are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning, and we come to chapter 46 in this great and glorious history of salvation. And we have been learning a lot about God throughout our time in Genesis, haven't we? We've learned about his nature. We've learned more about his nature. We've learned about God's desires, what God cares for and cares about. We're learning of God's pursuit of both justice and mercy. We're learning that God desires to forgive even the most heinous of sins and sinners. Last week, Pastor Hans did a great job walking us through chapter 45 of Genesis. And we witnessed that emotional unveiling of Joseph to his brothers. Understandably, his brothers were shocked. They were stunned to see that the brother that they had betrayed 22 years previous was still alive. But at this point in the story, up until chapter 45, so much transformation had already taken place in Joseph and the brothers. So that by the time the unveiling happened, Joseph had already become convinced of God's purposeful providence. And by the time of Joseph's unveiling, his brothers had already become convinced of their guilt before a holy God. And because God had been working on both the heart of Jacob and the hearts of his brothers, true reconciliation was born in the relationship. Joseph was so convinced of God's control of all things that he even says this to his brothers, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. It was not you who sent me here, but God who sent me here in order to preserve life. 
Joseph was convinced of both God's providence and God's goodness. We have to hold these attributes of God together. God is not only in control of all things in life, all circumstances, but he's also good in all of it. And even though Joseph had felt the sting of life over and over and over and over again, God kept showing Joseph of his good nature and his purposeful providence, his meaning in all things. As a fruit of his forgiveness, Joseph offers refuge and safety for his family in Egypt. He says to his brothers, go back, tell dad that I'm alive and bring everyone, bring the whole family. And I am the ruler here. I make the decisions. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you resource, supply. Come, come back. So the brothers head back to Canaan to share the good news with their father and Jacob's soul is revived. In fact, in chapter 45, the very last words of chapter 45 end with Jacob saying this, it is enough, Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, before we transition into chapter 46, it is one thing for Jacob to say, I will go and see my son Joseph. That's one thing. It is a whole other thing for Jacob to move his entire household to Egypt in order to live. After all, Jacob's household is in Canaan. They are in the promised land. They are in the land that was promised to Abraham and promised to Isaac. They are in the promised land. It's one thing for for Jacob to say, I will one day go visit my son in Egypt and see him before I die. It's a whole nother thing to move God's covenant people from God's covenant land to a pagan nation, Egypt. The move of Israel to Egypt for the sake of preservation could seem like an act of unbelief and not an act of faith. And so the patriarch, Jacob, does what every godly leader is called to do before making a final decision. Jacob calls upon the name of the Lord for wisdom. Is this what I should do? And this leads us now to our first scene in chapter 46, a scene I've entitled Tender Assurance. Look at verse 1 again. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, Note that, Beersheba, and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, Beersheba is the most southern region of Canaan right before you transition into Egypt. It's the final stop before they go into pagan territory. So it's significant because of its geological placement, but it's more significant because of its spiritual relevance. As another writes, it was at Beersheba where Abraham made his covenant with Abimelech. And it was there that Abraham's faith shone the brightest when he was going to sacrifice Isaac at Moriah. That was all in the region of Beersheba. 
Furthermore, it was also in Beersheba that Abraham's son, Isaac, Jacob's father, experienced a theophany, an appearance of God, and he built an altar, and three times Isaac, Jacob's father, was assured that God was with him. I am with you, Isaac. I am for you, Isaac. I am with you, Isaac. So Beersheba has spiritual significance in the heart and mind of Jacob, and that's where he wants to go to build an altar, to make sacrifices, to make sure that he is being obedient to God's will to move God's people from the promised land to Egypt. And so he needs assurance. He needs assurance. Notice Jacob already has the assurance of provision and resource, right? His son is the vizier of Egypt. He has assurance of provision and land and resources. He knows there's going to be bread there when he moves his people. But listen, this is really, really important. None of those guarantees from Joseph means anything if God is not for the decision. As a faithful leader, Jacob knows that he needs divine permission to take the journey. And so it is with us. The guarantee of comfort and provision is not the same as divine permission. Western Americans, self-included, preacher included, the guarantee of comfort and provision is not the same as divine permission. All earthly comforts and resources in the end, are temporary. Unless God provides permission, all the promises of prosperity mean nothing. So Jacob, a patriarch in progress, is learning how to lead. He's learning how to lead his people. And he's got this caravan of 70 people. And he says, we're going to make one more stop before we enter Egypt. One more stop. I need to be sure Because the promise of prosperity is not enough. I need God's permission. And so Jacob stops in Beersheba to seek assurance from God. Verse 2 and following, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. God spoke to Israel, that's Jacob, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Jacob was seeking assurance, and that is exactly what he received from the Lord. Tender assurances, five assurances, and I'll move through them quickly. First, the assurance that God sees him and hears him. Notice he says his name twice, Jacob, Jacob. We know this from ancient Hebrew. When things are repeated, it means to communicate emphasis. Jacob, Jacob, God did this with Abraham too, and Abraham was afraid. Abraham, Abraham which is to say, I need you to know that I see you and I hear you. Jacob, Jacob, 
I see you and I hear you. That is the first and probably the most important assurance that Jacob could have, that he has not lost the affection and the attention of Yahweh. The second assurance, God says that he will make a great nation out of Jacob in Egypt. God is saying that the promise of a great nation remains and I will use Egypt to grow my people. God is assuring Jacob that his promise to Abraham and his promise to Isaac has not changed. Though he is moving them to Egypt for a time, God is in no way removing his promise from them. Third assurance, God assures Jacob that he will go down to Egypt with him. Right, this is the assurance of divine protection. I will be with you every step of the way. He will not be alone in Egypt. Though Egypt is a godless nation, God is no respecter of human borders. It's not as though Yahweh hits the border of Canaan and goes, mm, sorry, Egypt is off limits for me. God is assuring Jacob that he will be with him in Egypt. The fourth assurance, God assures Jacob of deliverance out of Egypt. And if you just read through this, it's just easy to miss. But not only will God be with them on their way to Egypt, but then God says in verse four, I will also bring you up again. So God grants Jacob the promise of deliverance. And then the fifth promise of assurance at the end of verse four, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now God didn't have to say this. God doesn't have to say any of this. But what a tender assurance and promise from Yahweh. Not only will you see Joseph, but he will be there at your peaceful death. The son you thought was dead and gone and buried in your heart and mind is the son that will be there and will bury you on your last day. A tender promise and assurance from the Lord to Jacob. So that is the first scene, tender assurances. The next scene, of course, is the actual journey from Canaan to Egypt after receiving divine permission. Verse 5 and following says, Then Jacob sent out from, set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. Note that. Verse 6, They also took their livestock and their goods which they had gained in the land of Canaan and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And then there's a list of really hard to pronounce names, which we've become accustomed to as you sit there and watch me or Al or Hans fumble through these names. I'm not going to go through every detail of every name of Jacob's descendants, but I do want to point out one insight in this scene, and then we'll hurry on quickly to the last 
seen. One insight from all of these listings of descendants. And that is this. Here's the insight. God is in the business of saving individual people. You're like, okay, that's brilliant. Thank you. He is in the business of saving individual people. Now, sinful humanity, which is you and I, we have turned this idea of individual into individualism, which God is not for. Individualism is the belief that man can be utterly independent, utterly autonomous. We don't need God and we don't need each other. God is not for individualism. That is a distortion of the individual. But just because God is not for individualism does not mean he is therefore not for individual people. What I'm trying to say is God is very particular. Verses 8 through 27, those hard to pronounce names in Genesis 46, is yet another example in the Bible where God calls out specifically those who are his by name. If we move beyond Genesis, we find that there's an entire book, the book of Numbers, where God instructs the leaders of Israel to take scrupulous detail to count every single one of God's people. And that's about where we get in our, in our daily devotions, right? We get like, we start in Genesis and then we get to numbers and we're like, I got to switch things up here. I got to head to, I got to head to Psalms. I need Ecclesiastes. I need something more punchy than, and then begot this one and then begot this one and then begot this one. But I am strangely warmed now by those sections of scripture because what they communicate to me and to us is God is for individual people. He doesn't just save gobs of nameless and faceless people. Like I'll take this group and not that group. No, no. All the way to the book of Revelation we learn of something that is called the Lamb's Book of Life, where individual names of God's redeemed people are written down. So as to say, these are the people that God the Father has applied, applied the atoning blood of his Son to a definite people whom he knows by name. God doesn't paint with a broad brush He's specific. His love isn't messy or reckless. It's definite. He's particular. Every name accounted for. God is in the business of saving individual people who will then join other saved people. And that is called the household of God. A community of God's Chosen saints. Lastly on this, this is really important for us on our daily walks with Jesus. It is good to have a big God theology 
that God is so massive, so sovereign, that our minds and hearts cannot comprehend his bigness. He holds galaxies and galaxies within galaxies together. He holds every atom and molecule together. We need to have this big, immersive view of God's bigness. But God not only has the capacity to hold galaxies in place, but simultaneously, as he holds galaxies in place, he has the capacity to care and influence individual people. That means he actually hears you when you pray. That means he, he actually has the capacity to care when you come to him. He's not preoccupied with Saturn. <laughs> is that still a planet or is Pluto the one that dropped off? I can't remember. Pluto's the one that, so that's not a planet anymore. Sorry, science. But that, that, he's not preoccupied with other things. He has the capacity to hear you. And here in Genesis 46 is just one more glimpse of the scrupulous care of God to count every single one of his people. And so then verse 26 and following as we close this point, all the persons, verse 26, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. And all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Just 70 Israelites, descendants of Jacob, 70 brought into Egypt as a result of the famine. If you're not familiar with the history, 430 years later, close to 2 million Israelites would leave Egypt in the Exodus. God indeed made a great nation. So then Jacob takes his entire household to Egypt after receiving these tender assurances from the Lord. God counts every one of them and all of this now leads to the climax of the chapter in our final scene, which I've entitled Reunion and Preservation. Reunion and Preservation, verse 28. He, Jacob, who is, by the way, about 103 right now, so not a, not a young pup anymore. He sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. This was in my notes, but I remember Gordon Windham in his commentary, he was saying, Judah is a really interesting pick here. He sends Judah, Jacob does, sends Judah ahead, ahead of him. And if you remember back at the betrayal of Joseph, it was Judah's idea to send Joseph into slavery. So now in God's kind providence, it is Judah that will go ahead to be the forebearer, the announcement of a reunion between Joseph and his father. And they came into the land of Goshen. Verse 29. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel, verse 30, said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. 
another remarkable scene in this story of Joseph and his brothers. Jacob and the entire family are riding in. Picture the caravan leaving Canaan into Egypt. They're riding in on borrowed wagons. These are wagons that were loaned to them by Pharaoh. Meanwhile, Joseph arrives in absolute royalty. The vizier, the vizier's chariot would have been something to behold, something to see and fear. With dozens of servants surrounding the chariot and trotting alongside of it and perhaps even a security detail to assure safe travel into Goshen, the contrast could not be more clear. However, when Joseph sees his father, all palace dignity melts away as he falls into his father's arms. The text says he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. That means that Joseph was in no rush. He wanted to savor this moment. 22 years of separation. Two resurrections had happened. Joseph was resurrected in Jacob's eyes and Jacob was resurrected in Joseph's eyes. And they wept a good while. So Joseph is alive. Jacob is revived, the brothers are restored, and God's people are safe, and they are provided for in Egypt. One final hurdle remains for Joseph, and this is an important point. One final hurdle remains for Joseph, and here it is. How do you preserve the distinctness of Israel? while they live in a land filled with pagan idolatry. That's a big hurdle. How do you preserve the distinctness of God's covenant people while they live in a land that's filled with pagan idolatry? How does he protect his family from the famine and how does he preserve his family in the middle of a godless Egyptian culture. What a tragedy it would be to move all of God's people into safety and abundance only to have them lose their distinctness and identity. Is that, maybe I'll just pose that question to the congregation, is that a good trade-off? Comfort, prosperity in exchange for identity. I wonder if we face that question almost daily. Joseph doesn't want this. Joseph is directed by God. God does not want to lose the distinctness of his covenant people. So what is he to do? Joseph dries his eyes and he works a plan. Look at verses 31 to the end. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. 
and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. Verse 33, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? Verse 34, you shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers. And he says this, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now this is, as another writes, a perfect plan of diplomacy. This is perfect diplomacy. Everybody wins. Goshen was a border city with expansive land, perfectly suited for grazing animals and shepherding livestock. And by being emphatic about their vocation as shepherds, which was an abomination to Egyptians, Egyptians don't want to touch shepherds, Joseph successfully preserves the distinctness of God's covenant people because Egyptians would want nothing to do with unclean Hebrews. Problem solved. Give them Goshen and keep Egypt away from them. Diplomacy at its finest. Here's the point. God's people were permitted by God to be in Egypt. But God's people were not permitted by God to be of Egypt. This idea, listen, of distinctness has been a perennial challenge for the people of God in all ages. In all ages, God's people face the difficulty of being situated in a culture while remaining distinct and prophetic in a land that is not their own. And we find this challenge alive and well today. How do we, as the church, remain situated in a culture and at the same time remain distinct as God's people? Jesus Christ the true and better Joseph has saved his people from the famine of sin and death and has brought us into a new city on a hill, a new Goshen, if you will. And this new city is called the Church of Jesus Christ. And in this new city, its citizens receive a citizenship that is not earthly, but heavenly. And this redeemed people called the church, this new city, this distinct people, like the people of Israel, are to be different, peculiar. You're to see someone that's from within the church and go, that's different than the culture. Jesus would say that the church needs to be, ought to be salt and light a city on a hill, salt and light, bringing healing to decay and bringing light to darkness. That's what this new city is to proclaim. We are to be in the culture, in Egypt, so to speak, but not of it. However, 
If we marry the church with the wisdom or the doctrine of man, how will we not lose our saltiness? For the sake of pragmatism or cultural advancement, if we marry our worldview with that of the worldview of this culture, how will we not lose our saltiness? Or more specifically, if we marry the church to one political party or another, or if we let the church be co-opted in order to win a culture war, then even with the best of intentions, we'll not, we will not only dilute the prophetic witness of the church, but in some cases pollute her gospel altogether. Therefore, we need to remind Pharaoh and ourselves that this is not our ultimate home. Like the descendants of Jacob, God is using the loins of this godless world to grow his church, and he will deliver her out of it. It is not lost on me that I am preaching this idea of distinctness in culture. It's not lost on me that I'm preaching this on July 4th weekend. It was not planned by me to be preaching this. But please hear me. I love the United States of America. I think it is an incredible grace that we get to live in this land Patriotism, which is the love of country, is not a sin. We bought fireworks last night and spent way too much money on these stupid things. My kids aren't here, but they just, they just go so fast. And it's like, that was 50 bucks, that thing. <laughs> why do I spend, why do we do that? We love our country. Not only that, we want to celebrate the freedoms that we have in this land. Who's the, what's the, I'm proud to be an American. Like Lee Greenwood is going to be blasting in the bud home. Patriotism, the love of country is not a sin. And at the same time, it has always been a great danger for the people of God. From Israel to the church today, to lose sight of our ultimate citizenship. And through the deceitfulness of sin, we can find our loves disordered, as C.S. Lewis would write. In other words, we can elevate our love of country above our love for God, and the change is so subtle that we can hardly see it because both are good. But after a while, we become more and more willing when the deceitfulness of sin comes in, when our disordered loves happen, our love for country exceeds our love for God, we'll become more and more willing to let in foreign doctrines into our hearts and into our churches in order to preserve our earthly homes rather than the doctrine that preserves our heavenly citizenship. 
So as we close this final point, the point is like Israel, the church must remain an independent, undiluted, prophetic witness in the world. The church, just like Israel in Egypt, is to remain independent, peculiar, different, distinct from the milieu, from the flow of human wisdom. And to remain prophetic, we must remain distinct in our loves. These are a people that love God more than anything. And these are a people whose citizenship is ultimately in heaven. Though we're grateful and celebrate our citizenship here, these are a people that love God above all. Jesus said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. May God make us a distinct people for the sake of prophetic witness in a dying world. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the assurances that you gave Jacob that you are with him and that you are for him. Thank you for counting your people. Thank you for being so detailed. Thank you for, for, for knowing hairs on heads and individual names. Lord, and as you call us all together, thank you for making us a distinct people. Please guard our hearts and our churches from adopting worldly wisdom to advance our cause. We do not need the resources of a godless world. We have all that we need in you. So keep us prophetic. Keep us distinct for your name and for the joy of your people. Amen.